when we left you last time on non-religious Christian news, Zechariah, aka the Timotheus, had a little novice moment, which is good. Uh, which it's it's okay. He's he's allowed to be a novice. And I didn't get to fully answer that question. I, I was being what question? Well, you went into your now. If you check the archives, and, and you really need to because you you had one of your explosive moments, and you kind of got into what we call in the Christian world the flesh, <laughs> and you really, really just kind of went off. And it was good. I let you go because your voice represents more than just just you. So I'm going to deal with that, like in the open right here. I'm going to deal with that, and then we're going to get into a debate. Uh, Elder Elder Ron and myself have been in this debate before. And so we're going to do this in a little bit of a unique way. Elder Ron, Pastor Ron, Minister Ron, good morning to you. Good morning. We are out on the East Coast. It's almost noon, so we're, we're pushing up on that uh, lunchtime hour. But uh, we know on the West Coast, it's really, really early. So we don't want to just kick a debate right into the face of our West Coast listeners. So I'm going to chastise. I'm going to do a chastisement on Zachariah for about five minutes. Now, Zachariah, you made up a good point last week. You said, and I and I paraphrase, uh, there's a lot of gray area and you, and no one can really know. It's too much. It's gray. You know, you, do you remember that movie? It is in? gray. Okay, so check the archives and check on iTunes now because you can find Zachariah's tirade on there. Um, but I'm going to help you with something called hermeneutics. All right, hermeneutics is a fancy Ron. Well, how would you define hermeneutics? Oh, it's the it's the method by which we interpret scriptures. And and and, a, and almost some people can call it a science. Yes, and there are good ways and bad ways. Right, and, and also we we I like to harp on because I heard a a really famous scientist say this. He said, if two scientists disagree, one is right, or the other is right, or they're both wrong, but they can go to the evidence and find out. This does not happen in religion or politics. That's a direct quote from a really famous scientist who was absolutely wrong because actually in in Christianity, there is an absolute truth. Uh, Elder Ron, would you agree to that? Even though people argue their shades or meanings, would you say there's an absolute? Yeah, there is absolute truth. I think there are paradoxes, things that we can't fully understand, but uh, there is truth. And we live in an age that basically does not believe that. Uh, most people hold to relative truth, and if there is no God or there is no anything, then truth is relative. But because there is a God and truth emanates from his mind, then truth is absolute. And so, Zechariah, I'm going to use some simple and as well as technical terms here because I want you to imagine a, a table in front of us. And so instead of this desk in front of us, imagine this is a gray table since you said there's a lot of gray area. I want you to imagine there's a thousand-piece puzzle on this table. Okay, so there's a thousand pieces, none of it is together. The job of hermeneutics is to take each piece, study it, and put it in its proper place. That's what context does. So here are some of the things that Ron and I would do that you would have to learn to do in order to not see so much gray. When you read a passage, you're going to look at the passage in these lights. Are you ready? You paying attention? He, he is not paying attention. So I'll, I will just talk to Elder Ron because the novice oh, is already oh, oh, already went ADD. See, see, 
What I'm trying to figure out is what you're even talking about. When I said there was a lot, I said a lot of gray area about what? Because the fact that you have a debate lets you know that there is gray area. Right. And so what what I'm getting ready to tell you before you go off on another ADD is why there's not as much gray area as you might presume. Here are some of the things you must look at when studying a passage of ancient scripture. Is it a personal sentence? Meaning, is Paul telling Timothy, is Paul telling a church, or is, is he writing something that is personal? Is he writing something that is local? Is he writing something that is national? Or is he writing something universal? So off top, the one who is the student who is doing the research has to understand what type of writing this is. Number two, is this command temporal or is this command eternal? For example, circumcision of the flesh was a temporal command. We do not have that command with us today. But love was an eternal command. We see it both in the old and the new covenant. So the people who are debating may not understand that principle. We have more. So hold on, because it looks like you got something to say. Hold on a second. What type of language are we using? Are we using idioms? Are we using metaphors? Are we using wordplays? Are we using parallels? All of that is going to be important when studying an ancient scripture. Because if somebody 2,000 years from now was to come back and hear me say, I love French toast, they might go to a dictionary and look up the word love and assume it means a whole bunch of things. So they have to put it into the context of my sentence to really determine what I'm saying years later. So we have to understand what type of words, what type of language we're using. Also, the cultural. What type of cultural nuances are here to help us understand the passages? Geographical, as we learned in Laodicea, there were rivers that were coming into the city. We had a hot river from Hierapolis. We had the cold river coming in from Colossae. This helps us to understand the passage in Laodicea just based on geography alone. Many people miss it. Many people don't know it. And yet, when you understand the geography, it eliminates the debate. What type of textual evidence do we have? Is it eisegesis versus exegesis? Let me break those two down for you just really quick. When you take a piece of the puzzle, Zach, and you hold it in your face, you have one piece of the puzzle. How does it fit into the rest? If you only look at that piece and argue that piece, it's called eisegesis. You can make up anything like that. You could take one sentence from LeBron and make him say anything. You could take a sentence from uh, the president and make him say anything. What was that sentence in the context of the entire puzzle? That is exegesis. And then we have to look at the characters, their personalities. So are you starting to understand there's more to it than just taking a piece and trying to argue it? Do you understand that concept? Well, I think you're being somewhat hypocritical because you are a very spiritual person. You you constantly criticize, you know, the church for being overly analytical. And here you are using a very scientific method to explain something. What the hell does this have to do with hell? Our debate last week was hell. Right. So so what I'm what I'm showing you is that both Ron and I, before you intervene into the conversation with your novice tirade, is that we both put in this type of work. And so being over analytical has nothing to do with actually putting in the research necessary to even have a debate. So most of the time I will avoid a debate when I see the person has not even put in half of the research necessary to be entered into the debate because it would be useless. For okay. Them. They're, not, how, they're not looking for the how reality. How much research did the apostles put in before they went out and preached? I mean, any of them, you know, Paul, any of them. 
um, Paul boasted, first off, even before he was saved, that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning he had a very strong intellectual knowledge of the Old Covenant, not to mention even some of the churches he went to, a.k.a. the Okay, Bereans. Paul's a bad example, but there's other ones who had no knowledge, nothing, no background, and they were already preaching. Um, I would say you would have to show me that, because I'm going to show you that the ones who went out preaching with basically what you might call no knowledge of the Old Covenant, if we're going to be talking about the apostles, spent a lot of time with Yeshua the Messiah. So they had peer-to-peer training with the Messiah, and their primary teaching was that he was crucified and resurrected. They were not necessarily trying to teach nuances of the Old Covenant. They were going to the Old Covenant to prove he was the Messiah, and they didn't enter into debates. And in fact, they were warned. Shaul warned people, don't get into debates about genealogies, old wives' tales, and all these other things that we love to talk about. But he says they're not necessarily conducive for spiritual growth. So our debate last week, what we did, Pastor Ron took a word, the words of the passage, the words of a sentence, and he was saying this word forever and ever does not have to mean timelessness. It means that the that hell is an irrevocable punishment. My hermeneutic, what I was adding to the table was like, let's give irrevocable. Let's say that's true. There's two sentences after that in 944, 46 and 48 that say the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. So I conceded that it's irrevocable. That could be true. I brought in different sentences in a parallel form. So I was using a different hermeneutic. Now, was there a gray area? No. We're just debating the hermeneutic that is possible to describe this passage. And I was saying, even though it could be an irrevocable punishment, we have other passages to create the macro picture that says there's a timeless quality based on that phrase. And then you went into your little emotional. I, I don't think it was emotional. To, I just, to, you, you oh, go back to the things. archive. It's on iTunes. I don't want you to get the free one. Go to iTunes. I want iTunes, you to find that. iTunes. So now, Listen to it again. Okay. So you're the reason we had to open up like this. And now guess what? It's only going to get worse because we're getting ready to go into another debate. You're talking about war. <laughs> you're talking about gray area. Are you talking about churches splitting and friends arguing? We're getting ready to do that right now. And I, and, and I got my gloves on because we're going to do a debate just and, and not for the whole time, because most people have done this debate. But we're going to shed a little bit of light on it from our viewpoint. And I'm going to apply some hermeneutics and I'm going to challenge uh, Elder Ron on some of his hermeneutics. And we're going to put more and more pieces of this puzzle together through this debate, because the way we do it is we want to know the truth. We're not trying to be right. So, Elder Ron, are you ready for this? Because you you made mention before the show that people really argue this a lot. Yeah, friends can get lost over this issue. Uh, churches have been split. Whole denominations have been formed. Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah. All right. Well, this debate that we're going to introduce, well, introduce, that we're going to uh, re-emerge right here, it's once saved, always saved. Is it true? Is it scriptural? Because here's what we know going in. There are great people on both sides. And so if you hear something you disagree with, the first thing I'm going to say is, is check your soul to see why you're getting angry, because people are allowed to disagree. But if you call in to argue with us, and you're allowed to do that, all we're asking is that you present a great, sound scriptural argument, but please make sure you understand the other side. Elder Ron, I don't know if you run into this. Some people, when they argue, will ignore your points only to make theirs. Right. Well, you have to. 
on this issue. There's a great deal of, of, of biblical information that has to be ignored if you hold on to either one of these Ooh. positions. Oh, that's that's a strong. That's strong. That's something I would want to say. That's <laughs> that's good. So go ahead and give us uh, an intro on either side. I'll take the opposite side that you don't have. And there's kind of a Hebrew six passage. Do, do you know that one? Do you want to paraphrase it? I don't have a Bible on me. Uh, well, I mean, if somebody has tasted of the heavenly gift and then and then falls away, uh, the writer of Hebrews said that it's impossible to renew them to repentance. And it implies, seriously implies, that you can taste and lose your salvation. Now, I've heard people say, well, they just tasted, they didn't ingest. But I think that's playing games. I think what the writer is really saying is they tasted and um, they experienced it. And uh, I think that's uh, that's a strong argument for the idea that, that you can lose it. And I think um, some of Jesus' parables were awfully strong arguments for the fact that it can be obtained and then lost. Just, just one of them, uh, the parable of the soils. The seed was sown on four different soils. The one soil was hard, and the seed never got in. But the second soil was the rocky ground, and then the third soil was the weeds, and the fourth soil was the good ground. And all of these soils, the, the seed went in and actually germinated and grew. And uh, But in the end, uh, the second and third soil, it was killed through buried rocks that didn't allow the roots to go deep, or it was, it was killed by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And the seed died, and uh, there was no fruit. And the Bible says, by their fruit you shall know them. So uh, from these, I, I would conclude that uh, it's possible for the seed to be planted, grow, and die. And, and that, that seems really, really clear from that piece of the puzzle there. But we know there's going to be some people, and, I, and I'm just going to try and bring some arguments that I've heard um, and that I've actually used. No one can snatch them out of my hand. I didn't give the whole context here, but you know the passage right. very well. Most people do. How does that uh, correlate with what we're saying here? Well, I can sit in this chair, and and if I'm strong enough and big enough, I can say nobody can make me get out of this chair. But I'm not saying I can't get out of it myself. Uh, I am not helpless. I sat in the chair. I can get out of the chair. And, and if I'm strong enough, I can say nobody can make me leave it. But I'm not saying I can't step out of it. So uh, I, I don't think that in itself proves your point. Um, what about the ones that argue that you had no ability to choose, so to speak, that right. you cannot come to God on your own, is, and which is true. We, we see that no one can come to Elohim unless the Father enables him to come. Therefore, if you've been enabled to come, it would only be the enabler who would allow you to go away. But if he's called you in by his own strength and he then has the ability to keep you in, how is this even possible for you to, to walk out of something you've been called into? And, and let me add this, foreordained. So let's go into Romans 8 and let's bring in some of that context that you've been foreordained for this very purpose. How can you then go the other way when this is something you've been called into? Well, the uh, seed that went into the soil was planted by the sower. The soil was without seed until the sower put the, the, the seed into the soil. Um, so in a sense, it was the sower's initiative, but that isn't saying that the seed would live and bear fruit. Um, 
I think that's your strongest argument, and that, that we are predestined before the foundation of the world. And that would be, to me, one of your stronger arguments. If we were predestined, that means I, I was chosen. Right. Uh, and choosing implies choosing some and not choosing others. Correct. And you get into um, double predestination and the idea. Um, people have tried to deal with this by saying, well, God can just see into the future. Which he can. saw what I would do in the future. And therefore, he saw that I would choose him and I would persevere to the end. So then he predestined me. But that takes the initiative away from God and back on me. If God just saw what I was going to do 20 or 30 years from now and then consequently predestined me, that means I made the decision. He didn't make the decision. And yet the Bible seems to imply there where you're talking about that God made the decision. And um, people assume that we have to have, God has to see into the future for him to be sovereign. And the whole idea is the once saved, always saved people, I think, feel that they are defending the sovereignty of God. And yet, does God really need to see the future and nail it all down to be sovereign? I think there's a possibility for me that maybe the future is open. If God can see into the future, that implies it's already there, and maybe the future isn't there yet. And if it's not there, then there's nothing to see, because it's open. And I think for me to be sovereign, I would have to know what the future was. But God, I think, can be sovereign and bring about his will and yet leave the future open. Um, so I, I don't think we're necessarily protecting the sovereignty of God by, by declaring a person once saved, always saved. Um, people say, well, yeah, foreknowledge doesn't, doesn't solve the problem. There's a problem here, but I don't think simply foreknowledge solves it. And I've heard people say, well, God just knew what I was going to do. Uh, I think we have choices. and we're, if, if I was preordained, then judgment would be kind of pointless. Uh, how could God judge me for something that I did not decide to do? Now, isn't that the very argument, however, uh, and allow me to paraphrase, um, can he hold me guilty for what I've been called to do? I mean, doesn't he, the, the potter, Elohim, have the right to make out of the same lump some some for noble use and some for ignoble use. And then it comes back down to, does he have the right to do so? And who are we to talk back? So does that passage start to illustrate that very question? Like he, he's allowed to do but that. But is he talking about salvation? And that the thought just occurred to me. He may not be dealing with salvation at all. He may be dealing with uh, the tasks and jobs and the places that we were born here in this life. I mean, some of us were born in dark places and some of us were born in places of privilege. Some of us were given gifts. Others of us were not. Uh, maybe he's not dealing with salvation in that issue. Uh, and he certainly is sovereign in that sense that he has the right to make us whoever he wants. But I don't, I'm not sure that deals with the issue of choice. And we are, you know, like in, uh, Joshua said, choose you this day who you will serve. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is clearly articulating choice. And I don't think God gave the Old Testament people choice and then gave us non-choice. So if Joshua had choice, that means I have choice. And that would be the whole basis for whatever judgment I will deal with someday is the choices I've made. God can't 
even though he's has the right to make me anything he wants and give me any particular task or office or job, he still will judge me on the choices I've made within that context. Otherwise, uh, judgment becomes, well, it's not judgment. Right. Let me ask it in a, in a different light based on what you're saying. <clears throat> and I want to make sure I understand that, too, because that's, that's really good. There's sovereignty and there's choice, both and, not either or. We know that to be true. We also know that it is possible that we have choices within our realm of choices. So let's say, you know, we cannot choose to be an angel. So we don't have mm-hmm. that choice, but we have choices within our human realm that we can choose from. Right. So now the question becomes, there are certain choices we can make, but there are certain choices we cannot make. He's still sovereign by giving us that choice. So we cannot choose a destination, let's say theoretically, outside of heaven or hell, but we can choose maybe within heaven or hell. But let's say that question itself, maybe that is one of the choices given to him and not to us. So we know for sure humans can choose certain things. We're free to choose certain human things. Humans cannot choose other things. You cannot become an angel. You probably can't become a demon. So there are certain choices you cannot make. Only Elohim can make. Maybe salvation falls into the latter and not the former. Maybe you're allowed to go to work where you want and, and eat what you want, and you have those choices, but you cannot choose where you're going to spend eternity. That was his choice, not yours. There's so much that seems to argue against that. Like uh, the verse that says, he who perseveres to the end, it is him who will be saved. And what about the person that persevered, but they didn't make it to the end? Were they never saved? That becomes the that becomes a flip question. That becomes and a question. That becomes the way out for your position. You can say, well, somebody who didn't persevere to the end or the seed that died because of uh, rocks or weeds, then it wasn't really saved at all. But to me, that's uh, that's just kind of a, a way out of, of choice. I, I think uh, the seed that germinated in the bad soil was a, a plant and the person that persevered but they didn't make it to the end they did persevere they they were persevering for a part of their life and evidently they were saved now can a non-saved person persevere and you know i, I think they're talking about the church there now the question then I, I bring in to that and i agree like uh and so let, let me try and create this uh context just converse of that just real just for a second on earth and in human time and space dimension, we kind of think of salvation as where we start. But what if it wasn't where we started, but where we ended based on the passage you just said? So it's not that they were saved because they started and didn't finish. You're only saved if you finish that which you have started. So we're looking at the converse of that very, very point. And so, no, they weren't saved. Just because they started something but didn't finish it, it means it's incomplete. Therefore, it is incomplete. It is a failure. Versus the person who has completed it Therefore, we're going to judge by the end and not the beginning. So because somebody made an emotional prayer at the altar one Sunday morning because they felt good, maybe in the spiritual, that's not salvation. Maybe it's because they if they would if they were able to persevere all the way into the end, that shows what was committed here actually happened. So the argument isn't that they started and then they failed. It was that they either never started. But the only way we know is by the end which is where salvation... Well, you're saying that if a person accepts Christ as their Savior and they mean it, that we can't really call them a Christian until the end of their life. Because if they don't persevere, 
but do, why do we need to do that? Why can't we say yes? They they were a Christian. We tell them they're a Christian. When Maybe that's the, the fault. When they go to the altar and accept Christ, and it, it seems to be real, and we say we baptize them and say, "Now you're a member of the body of Christ. You're a brother. Hallelujah! Praise God." We don't say, "Well, at the end of your life, you'll find out whether you're a Christian or not." This may all be fraudulent. We don't say that. But the Scripture does, because He who perseveres to the end. So maybe we should be telling them that, well, that says, just because you started here with an emotional means nothing. It means everything to us as humans, but it means nothing in the spiritual dimension because we need to carry that same commitment all the way to the end. Maybe that should be heard. Well, now, take, this is an analogy, and analogies are never perfect, but say that salvation is like a free gift to a university. My son got a, a free ride at the University of Michigan as a math major. It didn't cost him a thing. But to go to school, he had to become a student and he had to study. So if, say, he'd have been at the University of Michigan for three years and then the last year got flaky and for some reason dropped out and never graduated, would you say he was never a student? I would say he didn't graduate and graduation and that analogy for me would be salvation. I'm going to let you answer that. But right now we're going to go to the phone line. We have uh, an old friend of ours, uh, Michael Brown, on line one, who I know. I don't know whose side he's going to take here, but I know he's got something to share. Michael Brown, good morning. Good morning. Hey, it appears that you have been listening and you are ready to give us your take. Please do. All right. So, um, Ron has said something about um, about the Old Testament having choice and the New Testament not having choice. But what if what if I could find a place in the Old Testament where there may not have been choice? Such as there was, um, there was a brother, um, good brother of ours by the name of Jeremiah, who um, who I always describe as the one who got away with talking crazy to God. There was a period in um, uh, uh, when God had sent him to to you know proclaim his message, like he does all prophets, and they didn't listen, like they never do any prophet, and. They, they, they talked about him, they mistreated him, so on and so forth, and he got mad at God. He said, God, you deceived me, and I was deceived. He said that, uh, um, he said, I said that I would no more speak your name or, 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 or do any of that stuff. You remember what I'm talking about, Ron? He said, I, I, I cried, uh, I cried spoiled and something like that. Long story short, he said that he wanted, he decided he did not want to walk with God no more. He didn't want to cry out for God no more. He didn't want to do any of what God had told him to do. He said, but your fire was in me, shut up like a fire. Your, your word in me was like a fire shut up in my bones, and I could not stay. He couldn't, you know, in the King James. I could not stay. I couldn't hold back. He wanted to hold back, but he had no choice to. Couple that with uh, the very first part of Jeremiah where we see his calling. He said, from the womb I called you. He didn't have a choice. Uh, um, uh, uh, Jacob and Esau, he said, from the womb, before either of you had done anything, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That was God's knowledge. Excellent. Hold on, Michael. Let's. We're going to let Ron uh, comment on that. Stay there. Go ahead, Ron. The whole idea that he couldn't walk away from God. I, I think we can experience that same sort of thing. We can get angry with God. Uh, Psalm 73 talks about the psalmist who looked at the wealthy people around him and he got angry at God and he said, it is in vain I have kept my heart pure. But then he said he, he went to God in prayer and God showed him that even though he was not doing well in this world, that 
he was on solid ground. Uh, so I think we can experience that. I'm not sure he lost all ability to make decisions. I'm just saying that God's fire was in him. God's fire is within me, I believe, and, and, and Mark and Zach. And, and if we get tempted to walk away from God, I believe the Holy Spirit will, will do everything to, um, to speak to us in the same way. I, I'm not sure that makes the point that uh, we can't walk away from God. I think he could have walked away from God. Uh, I think we, I, I, I just don't see where we lose that ability in, anywhere. But, uh, your, your point's well taken. I appreciate it. Do you want to respond to that, Michael, or, or, or are you satisfied with that? Well, um, I, I, I see, I see the, the, the direction he's going with that. However, um, how do you compare that with, uh, his calling with uh, the the very clear language that God used with his calling. Now, mind you, for the record, I agree with uh, uh, Ron one hundred percent. If you take either one of these positions, you're going to have to ignore or explain or pry in with the crowbar a whole lot of other scripture. I think the answer is both. However, to to give each side a a a, a, a fair you know, a, a fair shot to not build any straw man argument. Let's look at that. Let's look at how he was called, uh, what he was uh, chosen to do. He said, while you were in the womb, I chose you. Same thing he said uh, about um, his position with uh, Jacob and Esau. Um, and to your point, Ron, earlier that, you know, okay, well, maybe he looked in the future and saw that Jacob was going to be more serious and adamant about God than Esau was. Maybe uh, God saw that, you know, no, uh, he, he, calls people and makes them and causes them to be and gives them the gifts that he needs them to have to do what he would have them to do. Um, and I also agree that it doesn't really take away his sovereignty if we have choice. However, uh, every time he, the Scripture talks about sovereignty, it, it, you know, this is one of the points that it brings up, is that he, you know, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, uh, and the same thing with his calling and his predestination. That's an interesting verse uh, where he says, Esau, I hate it. I've never heard a real good explanation because the Bible says, you know, God so loved the world. And he's speaking about everyone at that point. Uh, and, and so I, I would really be interested, and we can't do it today, but to really dig deep. And I don't think, I've never heard a good explanation for that. Uh, well, let me, let me, excuse me real quick. Uh, that word so, in, in modern English, we use so as a... Um, as a um, was a degree, like I love the world so much, like I, you know. But if you look that word up, so it, it means in this manner, in the same way that we say, uh, like so. So all that scripture is saying is God loved the world in this manner. This is how he. This is the thing he did to love the world. I got a question. So what about the thief on the cross? What about somebody who? has done nothing their entire life in the image of God, nothing. And then right at the last minute gets in. Yeah. Last will be that, first, first will be last. Yeah, that takes on, that's a different, it's a good question, but it's a little bit different than the one I think they're talking about. Um, because for that thief, persevering to the end would almost be kind of easy because he was kind of right there on the brink, <laughs> you know, when it happened. Uh, and so and then he gets the promise. But he got to, it's funny because the other thief heard, heard the same promise and it doesn't appear that he made it. And so 
The question is, did that thief from the old covenant viewpoint, did he get to get in? It sounds like it because Yeshua told him today, you'll be with me in paradise without getting too deep into that today in a comma or not. Um, we know that that thief was able to uh, go into paradise. However, the question I think they're really debating here is, you know, let's say somebody has made a decision 14 years ago, but then lived like that thief on the cross for the next 14 years. You know, does that thief now who made that commitment and then lived like a thief for 14 years, does he get in that day after his death? That's kind of what we're looking at here. So let's say the thief got down. Let's say, okay, judicial release. Thief, come on down from that cross. And then he went and lived like a hellion for the next 14 years and then died. Would he then have made it into paradise? And the question I'm going to ask, Michael, since you're still on the line, both of you, Mike, I want you to take the real view on this one and, and Elder Ron, the Pharaoh. Did the Pharaoh and or yeah. Judas, let's bring them both in, did they have a choice on being the Pharaoh and or Judas? Because it's going to be written, and I quote, it is for this very purpose that the Pharaoh was raised up, that our father might show his power displayed in him. Was the Pharaoh damned for his obedience? Because it didn't seem like he was in heaven saying, oh, let me be the Pharaoh. He had to be the Pharaoh without choice and therefore fulfill prophecy. Michael or Ron? I have let my kids, when they were growing up, I remember there was a situation where my daughter was on a, a merry-go-round and wanted me to let her be the one to pump. And I said, honey, if you pump, that handle's going to pull you right off. Your arms aren't long enough to pump the merry-go-round. And she had a fit. She wailed and cried. So I was careful, but I said, okay, you sit here and you pump. And she grabbed a hold of that that handle, it came back, she grabbed it, it went forward, and it pulled her right off. And um, I was careful that she wasn't hurt, but I let her fall. And I let her do what was in her heart to do. Now, did I cause her to fall? In a sense, I did. But did I really, was I responsible for her falling? In a sense, I let her do what she wanted to do. And I think it, when, when in Romans 1, where it says, God gave them over, he simply let them be the kind of people they were. And, and Pharaoh was who he was. And God said, okay, I'm going to let you be you. And uh, I, I don't think God molded Pharaoh to make him sin. God just gave him over to what was already in his heart. Just like I gave my daughter over to the ignorance and disobedience that she was expressing. And I wanted her to learn to trust me. And uh, I, I let her fall in the dirt. In, in this merry-go-round situation, it sounds cruel, but wasn't okay Ron, I, and sound makes sense i think the analogy falls apart in that um you are not all powerful over your daughter to form who she is and what she's going to become um that's where things come apart because now another person would say an atheist even would say well um we're talking about a good god who has the ability to make sure you don't hurt yourself or make sure you don't do these bad things or what have you, um, or to form you in such a way or, I don't know, make your life circumstances in such a way that you'll make different choices, however uh, this agency is, 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 is used. But um, at the end of the day, an all-powerful God who does not do something when he can, um, somebody would ascribe you know, fault to that. They would say that, you know, you cause these things to happen by not doing these other things. You said earlier, 
he let them be who they were going to be, agreed, that implies that he has a choice to not let them be who they're going to be. I was using this exact, exact same example uh, explaining um, um, how the powers that be are ordained of God. That doesn't necessarily mean that the things that they do or the people that they are are good. You know what I mean? Um, so uh, C.S. Lewis, King of Babylon. Hmm? C.S. Lewis made the statement that said that if, if God controlled us to that degree, we would end up hating him. If every time a criminal set out to rob a bank, God would turn the bullets into styrofoam. And every time a, an alcoholic got into his car, God would not allow the car to start. Uh, that we would end up hating a God like that. Uh, that God had to give us free will. And that uh, I don't have any trouble with free will. Uh, I'm not sure that's the point that you're making. But uh, I think God has given us a terrible amount of free will. And And I believe, you know, we, we both know, we all know that it's both and. And I guess what we're trying to define is, is there a line that must be followed every time? And I don't think there is. I think that's why there's so much gray area, as, as Zachariah would like to like to say. Um, let's let's just take this quick analogy. It doesn't have to be accepted. Let's say you, you are a father and you have kids. You can exercise your sovereignty anytime you wish, but you can exercise and let them have choice anytime you wish. So this sovereignty and free choice does operate together. And we can't tell father when to intervene and when not to. He doesn't have a rule that says he must intervene every time. But we also know he does have rules where he does intervene. By his own knowledge, he will intervene. So let me quote this to you. And, and it says that the elder will serve the younger. So I'm going to quote out of Romans 9. And this is what uh, Michael was just talking about. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Now, here comes a question back. Here comes the here comes the philosophical question. Is there unrighteousness with God? That's what C.S. Lewis was trying to tackle, because if this is true, if he loved Jake, if he loved one and hated the other, even before they were born, then we can as a human being say there's something wrong with Elohim. But he says to Moses, I will have mercy. This is the quote. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. But upon God who shows mercy, Romans 9, 16. Therefore, the scripture says unto Pharaoh, right after this, to illustrate his point, even for the same purpose have I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be declared throughout the earth. Therefore, again, now in conclusion, he repeats his former point. Mercy on whom the Father has mercy, and he will harden whom he will harden. This is up to the Father. So now here comes a here comes a second philosophical question in 19. Will say will you then say unto me why does he find fault for who can resist his will? This is the question everybody in scholarship wishes Paul would have answered. But he doesn't. Look at how he handles this in 20. Nay, O man, who are you to reply against Elohim? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why have you made me this way? So his answer though he didn't answer really answered it. He says the Pharaoh does not have the right to say, why did you make me the Pharaoh? Nor would Judas, because before Judas was born, it was written that somebody would betray him. And so he was doomed to destruction in the Psalms even before he was born in earth. Would anyone like to volunteer to be Judas? But somebody had to be Judas. There was a man born and doomed to destruction. And it seemingly he had no choice of this. And so he says in this book, this very book, he has the right to make some for noble purposes, some for ignoble. So does that make us look at Elohim differently? For some people it will, because we'll take that these verses and these, these chapters and kind of dismiss them because it doesn't quite paint the picture that we have been taught. Michael Brown, do you have a response for that? 
uh, yeah, uh, God's God. At the end of the day, um, he can he can do what he very well chooses, and we we don't have the ability or the expertise or the position uh, to stand in judgment of God's decisions, whether they be right or wrong. All we have to make these decisions based off of are are they causing me pleasure or pain? <laughs> are they causing me difficulty or or, or ease of life? Um, that's all we have to to judge that type of, you know, decision-making process that God goes through or sovereignty that he exercises, uh, we've got no means to judge that right or wrong. And I think that's why Paul left it out there. You know what I mean? He he gave it the, the, the nuclear option because he said so, because he's God. Next question. Right. Right. <clears throat> Elder so, Ron. Uh, give us one second, Michael. It looks like Elder Ron has a, a point to that. Yeah, I think I had heard a quote, and I memorized it from Martin Luther, uh, and he said this, and this to me made all kinds of sense, and, and it took, it, it seemed to answer the question for me. Martin Luther said, the high mysteries of faith cannot be rationalized by finite sinners. Therefore, paradox is the best vehicle to convey their profundity. The high mysteries of faith cannot be rationalized, and I think that's true. We, in our four-dimensional, very limited brains cannot really understand this is one of those mysteries that's probably uh, we can't fully comprehend. So we're given truth in what seems to be paradoxes. And I think God is saying if you can accept the paradox, if you can accept both the truth of both of these positions, you will come the closest to the truth that you can come in this in this world, even though we see through a glass darkly. We can see the best if we accept both sides of this issue and not try to choose one side and cut the other passages out of the Bible. Right. And and, and I think uh, we're at we're almost we're at the crux where we're going to move into a new a new segment. But uh, Michael, I'm gonna give you a concluding argument too and a concluding thought here, and you can even tell us before you go what is your actual or real viewpoint in this. But that's the one thing that I love that uh, Elder Ron said is if you become dogmatic on one side, you end up denying clear verses on the other. And so there has to be some sort of reconciliation between the two. And maybe that is one of those uh, gray areas that I'm going to coin mark for Zechariah that the finite mind cannot understand the infinite. Go ahead, Michael. I believe that from God's perspective, he absolutely has full sovereignty and choice, and we have none from his perspective, if you're looking at it from his perspective. From our perspective, it is the exact opposite. So a lot of those scriptures that talk about not being able to be plucked out are from God's perspective. All the scriptures, and this is oversimplistic, this is just what helps me understand it better, um, that speak about um, um, labor to enter into that rest, um, uh, the scriptures that you mentioned earlier, um, you know, tasting of the heavenly gift and, and falling away, the parable of the sower, all these different things are exhortive or, or in, encouraging us from our perspective to uh, make sure of that thing that we don't know for sure, we can't know for sure, is to is to, to give it everything that we've got, because we're supposed to be loving God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength anyway. So do that as if you're not sure, as if it is not something that is, and it's tough because there, there's so many scriptures that talk about, you know, know that, you know, Yeshua's finished work 
is enough for you. You know what I mean? So, but I believe it's both. I believe it's a matter of perspective. From God's eternal perspective, uh, yes, it is all set. The, the names are in the book, and uh, your name is either in it or isn't, and will either be in it or isn't. Um, but from our perspective, since we don't know what today holds, let alone tomorrow, um, do everything we can to uh, break into that kingdom violently. That just reminded me of a verse in Revelation where one of the letters to the seven churches, it talks about, you know, you persevere, your name will not be erased from your book of life. It can be life. blotted out. Blotted out. So, Excellent. Uh, yep. So I think I agree with you. Uh, this is a very difficult issue. Very. The one thing that, uh, and I, I go into Grafton Prison on Wednesdays and we have Bible studies, and one thing I harp on is you do not fight over these issues. No. You don't separate from other Christian brothers over this issue. And this was the best conversation I think I've had in this, yeah. just because of how mature yeah, even We do Michael not fight. Been. We yeah. do not divide nope. over this issue. We not don't. Zachariah. <laughs> That's actually, you're you're hard on Zachariah. I, have to be. I, 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 I yeah, want I have to defend to him. <laughs> Maybe there are gray areas. <laughs> you know, and Michael Brown, we want to thank you for uh, calling in. And uh, we're going to conclude here on the show with a spiritual exercise that I know you've been uh, a part of. So, you know, if you do need to call back and testify to that or here, what, you're on the line. So before I let you go, Michael Brown, we also kind of talked about last show, a spiritual exercise that was for Zachariah. I'll testify for him. He did not do it at all. But for you, uh, for Elder Ron, have you been exercising the spiritual exercise of the crucifixion and resurrection? Um, from time to time, I do. Um, in, in prayer, I will, uh, especially when I'm, I'm, I'm praying with uh, my lady, that um, uh, we recognize and acknowledge the death of Yeshua and its, uh, and its, and its relevance in our lives and, and that we are dead to things. Uh, when, when facing specific, it, it's really just a reminder for me, is, um, is that uh, when we're we're facing difficulties or whatnot, these things I'm I'm dead to these things and I'm alive to His will, and um, as long as I'm doing what God would have me to do, whatever happens is um, is uh, is good. Praise God for it. We appreciate you calling in, and you're always obviously welcome to call in anytime. And uh, Elder Ron, before we hear kind of your testimony on a spiritual exercise, um, I'm going to give one concluding thought to that whole debate. Just, I'm going to try, I just want this to be studied. I'm not saying this is a, a solution, but the metaphor is the historical metaphor of salvation. Most, most scholars agree that leaving Egypt is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of, that everyone, you know, the, the Bible authors went to. We also know that there's a promised land, but the, the part that gets left out of this debate so often is this place called the desert that they wandered in for years. I want to add that to the debate, not today, but I just wanted to be thought about. So I want to hear some some some, conclu mm, some conclusions. I need some sugar, I'm, I'm starting to fade here. I smell the chicken being cooked. I want to hear some scholarly debate on the desert period. People left Egypt, but they didn't all make it into the promised land. I like to propose this as a solution, possible. What people call salvation is leaving Egypt, but I say, Salvation should be only after we enter the promised land. I say there's a period sometimes between leaving Egypt and the promised land, which we see historically. We see people wandering in the desert, some for 40 years. I also want to propose that people died in the desert. Is that true? 
Some were destroyed by serpents and, and things of that nature. Shaul makes reference to this in the book of Corinthians. Um, this could be an answer, and it brings both sides into reconciliation. Did they all leave Egypt? Yes. Did they all make it into the promised land? No. What happened? Some were destroyed in the process of persevering until the end. Those who persevered until the end, we can call them saved. So we can look historically and see this being played out right before our eyes. And so the question what many Christians would have to ask themselves, and they would be afraid to, is they're saying because I left Egypt, I'm okay, but maybe they're still in the desert and they're not okay. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because you're still in the desert area. And there is a point where you could say with John, we live and look like Yeshua, so if we can rejoice because we are children. I think too many people are in the desert saying we're children, and they're not in a promised land saying they're children, and so they will still have the ability to not make it into the promised land. I want to leave that as a final thought to be thought about, and we can bring these as a historical, metaphorical solution to the debate. Elder Ron, last week we talked about a spiritual exercise. After every debate is done, after every sermon is preached, God has told us, and, and Shaul told Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Every scholar who has looked at the word train understands that word is uh, a Greek word where we get the word gymnasium. So this is a spiritual workout. These spiritual exercises that we talk about at the end of the show are really the meat of maturity. It, it would help take this guy, Zachariah, from his emotional tirades into spiritual bliss, if I could use that word. Um, but at the same time, it is a workout. I was coming here and on the way here, I seen a football team, a college football team on a Saturday morning working out. And it reminded me of my spiritual exercises that these men are having two a day practices on the weekend to get ready for a season that will quickly fade. What did the Christians do today as far as their spiritual workout? Did they wake up and did they exercise spiritually? I am also acutely aware that many Christians don't know what to do for a spiritual workout. They feel reading the book is sufficient. But we also know that there's a spiritual workout that has nothing to do with intellectual isms, which is what Zach was trying to chastise me on earlier. So, uh, Elder Ron, how was your week with your spiritual exercise and what can you do to improve? Well, I think probably, boy, I think this spiritual exercise um, takes place in prayer. Um, you know, the Bible, Paul said, I've been, the first verse I ever memorized when I became a Christian, and this one that set the foundation for my growth, was I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And that's what I've sought to do as much as possible. Uh, I think about that verse. I think about the idea that uh, we're not meant to become something, but we're meant to contain someone, that this life is not about becoming a good person, but it's becoming more like Christ because we let his spirit live and operate through us. Uh, we're like a glove. He's like the hand. The less padding we have in our glove, the more he can do with us. Uh, that, that's kind of the way that I've been praying. Uh, but on the other hand, I can't say that I've been thinking about this specifically that much. That's just, just the way that I have prayed. Yeah, excellent. I'm glad so you said that. I probably haven't done real well because I, I haven't thought about that that much, but I have thought about the idea that that I am to contain the Holy Spirit, that in and of myself, I've been crucified and that I've died. And that is the point. And 
and the key for a spiritual exercise is to bring the mind consistently and constantly back to that. And, mm-hmm. and even if it was, you know, the element of you are a container of the Holy Spirit, that's an excellent one. Um, I like to use that one. Um, can people, I would, I would really wish for spiritual maturity and for spiritual growth that they would find an exercise, stick with it, and bring it in. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to use the one because I've, I've been accustomed to it, and I'm going to use that one this week, is to consistently, and I'm, and I'm talking about as much as possible, as much as humanly possible, to remember that we're each like Mary was. We're containers of Yeshua's spirit, and everything we see and do has an effect and an impact on the spirit living within us. Mm-hmm. And it has been written that we have the ability to quench and grieve the Holy Spirit that is within us. And so to be cognizant of that, and, and as far as a spiritual exercise, not just to think about it, but to think about it as much as possible all throughout the week, when you're driving, when you're walking, when you're working, when you're when you're living, when, when you're relating to people, allow that thought to be the dominating thought that I am a container of the most Holy Spirit of Yeshua. And, and everything I say and do can have an impact on him. And I want to be cooperative, knowing that I'm a house sitter, that this is a house that he is renting out. And I have the ability to co-facilitate and cooperate with the Holy Spirit on a regular basis. So if I'm saying it's human and it's okay to cuss, but I'm realizing it's being antagonistic towards my house guest, then I want to be courteous to the house guest that who is living in my house. You know, it's not either all or nothing. It's, I think it's by degrees. That's why Paul said, you know, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He used the present continuous tense. I've used the analogy. I thought of this analogy. It's like we're a glove, and, and Christ is the hand. The Holy Spirit is the hand. You can be a driving glove, which is very thin leather. You know, the hand can do everything with this driving glove. It can pick up a dime on the, on, on the ground. Or we can be like boxing gloves that are filled with padding, and they're not good for much except just bashing things. And, and the trick is, as we become filled with the Spirit, we allow him to pull the padding out and turn us from boxing gloves to driving gloves. Excellent. And, and he can do whatever he wants with a driving glove. A boxing glove, you can hardly do anything with. You can do it hardly, but except for hit people, which except is what Zachariah likes, likes to do with his words. You're pretty hard on Zachariah. Yeah. <laughs> this is actually, I'm going easy on him. He's, <laughs> He's the one who's turned all these buttons and mics right. for us. <laughs> he is the producer, but... I, I see it like this with Zachariah, and, I, and um, I, I look at him as one day, let's say within two years, I want him to be able to lay hands on me, and if I'm sick, I want to be healed. So I want to make him the best spiritual doctor he can be. And so I have a coach's mentality, and I will not lighten up because he's got to be the best, and when he moves into the other side, I want Yeshua to say, well done to him. And I want to have as much as I can to make sure he, he hears that. And of course, I will not be disqualified for the prize myself. So I want to make sure we're all pushing. And that's why we like to give these spiritual exercises at the end, because this is where the maturity actually happens. It's not what you know, it's what you can show. This has been the non-religious Christian news on the BBS network for Ron, for Zachariah. This is your host, Yaconan. We will see you next week. Until then, Yah bless and continue to exercise.